Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The New Testament storyline places considerable emphasis and tension on the question of Jesus' title. The Gospel of Matthew stresses that Jesus is an ordinary Ben-Adam, son of man, while the Gospel of Mark shows him repeatedly insisting that people not reveal his identity as the Messiah because of their ignorance of his teaching. Throughout the Gospels, the biblical writers are careful not to let their audience, like the characters in the story, confuse Jesus with a military or political figure of triumph, highlighting instead the shame, defeat, and humiliation of Isaiah's suffering servant, emphasizing the weakness of an ordinary son of man in order to elevate the teaching of the crucifixion in opposition to human kingship. It is only in the Gospel of Luke, after having been deprogrammed by the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, that the New Testament writers are willing to unite the titles Son of Man and Son of David in the storyline. But have we been deprogrammed? To answer that question, we need only look to history to discover how many kings and presidents have painted or still brandish a cross on their flag or a mere God bless you on their lips before marching off to war? How many have twisted the meaning of the gospel into an icon of Jesus with a weapon in his hand? Look friends, either the cross means something or it doesn't. Richard and I discuss the gospel of Luke chapter 3 verse 23. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 477 of the Bible as Literature podcast. When we began our work on the Gospel of Matthew, we tackled the very difficult but important subject of the Matthaean genealogy. You know that lengthy passage that everyone yawns, nods off, and rolls their eyes through on the Sunday before Nativity in Eastern Orthodox churches and then asks the priest, Father, why do we have to read that gospel with all those boring names? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that people in Eastern Orthodox churches don't know Hebrew, and the author of the Gospel of Matthew wants you to be familiar with Hebrew. That is why the Matthaean genealogy traces the origin of Jesus's 
heritage, his lineage, his patrimony as Messiah back to Abraham. Because those hearing the genealogy in the Matthean prologue are being adopted as children of Abraham through the story of the Gospel of Matthew. And as part of that adoption, they are being flooded with the story of the Old Testament through the hearing of those names. But part of that flooding is also being forced to unpack the Hebrew of those names. So it is a quick study in Hebrew and a quick overview of the story of the Old Testament as a kind of adoption as children of Abraham in the Matthaean genealogy, the Matthaean prologue. Now here in Luke, we are three books into the New Testament. We again fall upon a genealogy of Jesus, but it's something different. It's being traced back not to Abraham, but to Adam. Now, those who are fundamentalist or who take this story not as literature, but as some kind of post-enlightenment historical documentary showdown with science, which is really not scripture's battle, will try to reconcile or figure out why scripture is contradicting itself, why one gospel traces Jesus's heritage back to Abraham and the other traces his patrimony back to Adam. Is Luke right? Is Matthew right? Well, this is a false question because Luke is presenting you with the patrimony of Jesus being traced back to Adam in order to address a different question and present a different teaching in line with the teaching of the Gospel of Matthew. This is such an important point, Father, about how we need to read the Gospels. I can't think of a better example because we see in Scripture, we see parts of Matthew and Luke that are copied word for word from each other. And they will have parables that are word for word the same, words of Jesus that are word for word the same. So if they could do that, they could have done the genealogy exactly the same. If they were about finding the actual historical genealogy of Jesus, it would have been easy. One of them could have borrowed from the other. A later copyist could have corrected one to the other. Probably there it happened in history that one copyist just took one of them. I'm sure someone wanted to harmonize them at some point. But the fact that the author of Luke has such a different genealogy is very important for understanding the rhetoric of how this all unfolds. We are not supposed to be reading the same genealogy. Now, for a lot of people, this is distressing. People will easily attack the Bible as not true, so to speak, because you have this just blatant contradiction. I mean, what's the name of Jesus's grandfather? It doesn't even keep that straight. Two generations before this. The guy was probably alive still, you know? But that's not the point. The point was not who was alive, who was actually, who was historically. The question is very different than the question that we ask. I'm going to say it again. The question is very different than the one that we ask. The point of this, partially, in a modern context, is to undermine 
what you think the gospel is supposed to be doing. It's not supposed to be checking out historically in the way that a modern historian does their work. That's not how this works. This is the best example of that. Because if that was how this worked, it would have been very easy to fix it. Very easy. And they didn't do it. So if they didn't do it, there's a reason why they didn't do it. Generation after generation after generation of copyists, they didn't do it. They kept the two genealogies separate. When there were so many things that they harmonized, they kept these separate. Why is that? And this is what we really need to be digging into as we're looking at these. Now, Father, the, what you said, the most blatant difference is the beginning point. And there's two ways. Narratively, Luke begins with Jesus and goes backwards. Matthew starts with Abraham and goes forward. So that point of view is different. Second, the end point in Matthew is Abraham. The end point in Luke is Adam, son of God. So those two points control the way that we read these and control what the point of these two genealogies is. So we have to keep those in mind as we're reading through these, because that is something that's significant. Why are there these differences? All we can do is look at Luke on its own terms to see what is the story that Luke is telling through this list of names. The list itself is important. The way the list is constructed is, is important. Where the list begins and ends is also important. All these points we want to bring out if we're looking at this literarily, which I think I, I hope I made the point that we shouldn't be looking at this historically. We should be looking at this narratively. The other thing that's important to keep in mind before we hit verse 23 of chapter 3 this morning, Richard, is that the titles of Jesus, beginning with the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, have been a sensitive topic throughout the storyline of the New Testament thus far. There's been debate about calling Jesus the Son of God. Remember that there was this progression in Matthew, this insistence on the title Son of Man. In Mark, everybody wanted to call Jesus Son of God, and he kept telling them to be quiet because no one really understood what it meant what the Father's will was for Jesus as the Messiah. Everybody understood it in human terms, especially the disciples. It's not that there was a messianic secret. This is a concoction of theology. It's that Jesus didn't want anyone talking who didn't know what they were talking about. That's why he kept shushing everybody. Don't talk about it unless you can speak correctly what my father assigned for you to speak, which obviously you can't because you still expect me to be some kind of a superhero. So don't speak. And it all revolved around the title Son of Man versus this worldly, fleshly, human idea of a son of God 
in gentilic terms, who looks like Caesar and wields a sword. That has been the tension thus far in the broader story of the New Testament. And now we finally come here to the genealogy in Luke, and we're going to see how Luke handles these titles. He's going to handle the same titles, which carry the same weight in context of the same biblical teaching, in a different story. He's going to handle the same titles and apply the same Isaiahic teaching about the suffering servant. So let's see how it unpacks differently now that we've come this far along in the New Testament storyline. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, in his commentary on Luke Acts, Father Paul makes the critical point that Luke stresses the age of Jesus in order to link him to David. So something critical is happening here. You are emphasizing Jesus both as king on the one hand, but because you're linking him all the way to Adam, you are at the same time emphasizing him as a Ben-Adam, a son of man. So you see this progression, Richard, of these titles, Son of Man, Son of God, in the broader storyline. They're coming together here in Luke. And this is just on the heels of the coronation scene where God the Father put Jesus on his knee in that Roman scene, that Roman household where the Father functions as a patrician and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, you know, that beautiful word, Evlokia. So it is very clear that Jesus is the heir apparent. It is very clear in Gentile terms, like any Roman hearing this text would understand that Jesus is the man. Any Jew hearing this text would understand that Jesus is the man. But then there's this twist of the Ben-Adam, and as the story progresses, we'll see how it's tainted by the metaphor of the suffering servant. So Luke is bringing it all together suddenly. You have now the king, the son of God, which is a metaphor that any Gentile would understand, but it's undermined by this Ben-Adam metaphor. And all of this is cemented by the application of the suffering servant teaching of the prophet Isaiah as the story of Luke progresses. The fact that it begins with Abraham in Matthew, but begins with God and Adam in Luke, it's really interesting because we separate these titles in our heads, Son of God versus Son of Man, but Luke, because it shows that Ben-Adam is the Son of God, it shows how this distinction is tenuous. Because Jesus is a Ben-Adam, but 
technically, literally everyone is. Now, this is not saying that everyone is. This is saying that Jesus is. So while everyone is technically Ben-Adam, Jesus is the Ben-Adam par excellence, which ultimately comes from the creation of Adam from God. The other thing that Luke does that's very funny is this phrase, as it was supposed. It's an odd phrase to throw in there because he says Jesus himself began to be around 30 years of age. In Greek, it says, being son as it was supposed of Joseph. So he's the so-called son of Joseph. On the one hand, it's showing this unbroken connection back to God and Adam, while also introducing a weakness, a weak link. Luke weakens the link between Jesus and Joseph. Now, whoever you say he wants to go from, he goes all the way back to Adam because he's a human being, right? So it's eventually going to make it back. What Luke is doing is funny. You don't have that in Matthew. It goes back to Joseph, and then it says, the husband of Mary. That's what it said in Matthew. But here, it's being supposed the son of Joseph. So Luke is showing that the history that we already had in chapters one and two, when I say history, I'm talking about the storyline. I'm not talking about what historians do. The story has him as Mary and God. This is how it came together, and Joseph was kind of secondary to the whole thing. Yet here, Jesus is grafted into this. So this question that Luke raises unnecessarily is something important. Like Father Paul says, if you skipped this, you'd have a much better narrative. If the author wanted this to be in there, he must be making a point. Why is it that it's as it was supposed? It's because this link with what it means to be a Ben-Adam is being expounded upon in this book. If you take a step back and follow the books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and now Luke, Matthew emphasizes and stresses literally pounding Jesus into the ground by the time you get to the crucifixion story, the passion story in Matthew, emphasizes, stresses Jesus as Ben-Adam, painfully so. When you flow into the Gospel of Mark, this drumbeat of everyone wanting to proclaim Jesus Son of God, especially the demons in Mark, Everybody wants to just proclaim Jesus as Son of God gets louder, and Jesus keeps telling everyone, no, just shush. You don't understand what the Father is asking of me. You're still looking for a Hitler. You're looking for a Caesar. You're looking for a worldly champion, so just don't talk. You're not going to understand the implication of the gospel until I'm executed and defeated because your understanding of glory still looks like a chariot and a helicopter gunship. And it's only when we come into the Gospel of Luke where we've had this constant stress. We've now heard the proclamation of the cross and we've now heard the public portrayal of the shame of Jesus Christ twice 
in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. It's now when we come to the Gospel of Luke that the writers of the New Testament are willing now to take a chance and say, okay, we're going to now use the title Son of God in conjunction with the title Son of Man. Because if you've heard the first two Gospels, this third time around, you still might not get it, but we're now ready to try to help you hear what we're saying. That this is the Son of God, but not like your Hitler or your Caesar or your president or your champion or your superhero. He's the Son of God, defeated and humiliated and put to death and publicly portrayed as crucified and shamed, a scandal in your ears and your eyes, because that's the only way we can disavow you of the human glory that you're clinging to so that you can hear the divine glory, which is the stripping away of all of the things that humans cling to. It's a vacuum of human power. So here we are in Luke, now finally, the third gospel. And this is happening here. That's why this genealogy is actually critically important. And once again, in all my years, in all my involvement in church education, I've never heard a church school teacher spend one minute on the Lucan genealogy. What can I say, Rich? I think you'd have pretty squirmy kids if your Sunday school teacher tried to teach this <laughs> because it's boring and it takes a lot of work to get through and adult brains are sometimes not equipped to get through it. The thing that really struck me about this, people are looking for a ruler in the image of other rulers they've had before. Just the fact that you name the names of rulers, they all evoke an image in our head and a genealogy of sorts of the kinds of rulers that we want to have. We can't forget that in the literary flow, verse 23 comes right after verse 22. In verse 22, we see that Jesus is the Son of God in a very particular way. A voice from heaven and the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove declared him the beloved Son of God. That is not how Joseph is the son of God. Joseph is the son of God through countless generations going back to Adam, going back to God. Jesus is different. How do I know that Luke is emphasizing this difference? Because when it comes to Jesus's link with the plain old way that everyone is a son of Adam, Ben Adam, he says, as it was supposed. There is no question there is no weak link between the declaration of Jesus' sonship and his sonship. The voice from the heavens make it absolutely clear. While his link with the genealogy is weak, weakened by the author of Luke. So the tension between this genealogy of rulers that we've had over all generations and the type of ruler 
the Messiah, the Christ, that we have declared in 22, is going to be blowing our minds because it doesn't fit the template. It doesn't fit the shape. It doesn't fit the genealogy. It doesn't fit the expectations. As we read, we have to be ready to see that this is not going to be according to expectations. And, you know, I like we've mentioned before, Father, I'm doing this Bible study on Hebrews, and that's the other thing. In Hebrews, it spends a lot of time talking about how Jesus is a high priest, but a unique high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to generations and generations and generations of Levitical priests from the house of Levi. Here we have him as a son of God that's different from every other generation's relationship to Adam and God. This is what Luke is setting us up for. This weak link between what you think a Messiah is supposed to be and a strong link between him and the will of God and the inheritance as his son. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.